If not now, when? I realized at that time that if I didn't do it, I would probably end up regretting it. I don't want to be in my deathbed asking myself, like, what if I had done it? What if I had tried? And what really helped me was saying, let me give myself six months, go to San Francisco, see if I can make something happen. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. Welcome to the Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy friends, great to be here with you. Hope you're keeping well. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In keeping with the recent theme exploring alternative proteins, everything from plant-based proteins to precision fermentation and cultivated meat, today I sit down with Arturo Elizondo from the Everyco, formerly Clara Foods, a company based in San Francisco that specializes in using precision fermentation to produce animal-free protein, their first commercial product being egg white. Arturo has a fascinating backstory one that includes an abrupt change in career and a giant leap of faith. A leap that so far seems to be paying off in dividends. The Everyco raised $175 million in December 2021, funds that will be used to allow them to rapidly scale and expand across America, an important step towards fulfilling the company's mission to change the paradigm and help the world shift to an animal-free food system. I really enjoyed this conversation. Subject matter aside, if you're stuck at a crossroads, and looking to follow your dreams, I think you'll be inspired by Arturo's journey. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. This is Arturo Elizondo, CEO and founder of The Everyco. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company 
with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Arturo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. Great to be here. Yes, I've uh, really been looking forward to this. Uh, we caught up, <laughs> we must have caught up uh, about a month ago or so, right? When we had a previous yeah. conversation. So um, nice to be chatting again. Kick things off for me here. You know, CEO of a, a fast-growing food tech startup in Silicon Valley. I'd love to to kind of get a feel for what a typical day in the life of Arturo Elizondo is. Do you have a, <laughs> a, a kind of set routine uh, most days in and amongst what I can only assume by that whiteboard behind you for those watching is is, <laughs> is fairly uh, chaotic and uh, forever changing. It would be quite a fast-paced environment, I'm sure. I'd love to, to know what a, a typical day looks like and, and what works best for you. <laughs> yeah, ha- happy to share. Um, you know, the, my schedule and what I focus on has, I mean, changes every day, but has changed um, a lot since the early days of every formerly Clara Foods, which we founded almost eight years ago. We're one of the oldest companies in the alt protein space. Um, and now we're you know, we're, we're in the process of scaling. And so my days look very differently now that, that, um, we have, we have a lot more people and a much bigger team to, to take on and, and put up more fires than I, than, than, <laughs> uh, than I was able to back then. Um, but in the more, um, uh, in terms of the, the, the day to day, I, I like to start off by, by journaling. I think a big part of, my growth last several years has been on bringing intentionality back into my life and moving, transitioning away from pure, you know, firefighting, you know, reactive state to more intentional um, way of, of of working. And it's and it's a and up and it's and it's a constant battle. But I realize that that you know, going slow, going slow to go fast, mm-hmm. and that's very very helpful. Um, and so I do that in the mornings, and then. Um, and then Uber to work, uh, it's like a 12 minute, uh, ride. And I kind of use that at a time to meditate for a few minutes, mm-hmm. but also start getting some emails going. And that way, when I come into the office, I hit the ground running. Um, and now I spend my time more so on kind of one foot in the company and one foot out, one foot in the company, working with my, with my COO, my VP of strategy and my chief of staff on, on mm-hmm. like the the day-to-day part of the business and then one foot out working with our investors our board and 
partners, um, big, you know, new things that, 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 that we're, lo- we're looking to incorporate into the business. Uh, and so that's, that's how I spend my, my time mm-hmm. for the most part. Silicon Valley, uh, I think most people are familiar um, with it, <laughs> or at least have heard about it. But I'd, yeah. love, I'd love to hear from you as a kind of insider in 2022, what, give me a taste for Silicon Valley. What, what is, you know, as a community... What is it all about? What, yeah. are, what are the things that you, you love, perhaps things that you, you maybe don't love that much? Yeah, well, I was a huge outsider um, before coming in eight years ago. I, I'm from Texas originally, grew up in Mexico, uh, spent some, some years in Mexico when I, um, when I was growing up, and then spent most of my time on the East Coast in Boston and then D.C. So until Silicon Valley, I, I, I didn't really know anything about this world. Um, but what I, what I've, what I've come to appreciate because investors or, or, you know, people that I would meet would, would, would ask me, well, why, like, why are you all based here? And what, what's the magic? Why are all of these companies mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley? And what I would say is like, you know, this is probably one of the only places in the world where people are crazy, like are where crazy people are willing to fund crazy ideas and you know, there's a lot of money, and you know, in, in many places across the world. But what makes I think this place special is that the people, the people who have money here, made their money with crazy ideas, right? You have the found, you have early employees of like Facebook and Google and Apple and you know, Dropbox and Uber, and 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 those, you know, the early employees all then become millionaires, and then. What do they invest in? They invest in other crazy ideas because that's how they made their money. And so there's this sort of mm-hmm. really strong community uh, and critical mass of angels, of super angels, of investors that are willing to fund it at the very early stages when companies are at their where they where they have the highest risk profile and no one really is willing to fund them. Um, and so that's what I think makes mm-hmm. this place really, really interesting. Yeah. So that sort of crazy idea and or ambition that you may be talked out of in another location around the world there it it sounds like what you're saying is those crazy ideas are actually quite normal in that environment yeah exactly exactly and it also doesn't hurt that you know it's in california and people already have these you know they're 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 kind of on on a different wavelength and you know burning man Mm -hmm. is close by and you have you know, people from from totally different backgrounds, um, just interacting with each other that that I think also makes it makes it especially mm-hmm. a, a, especially fertile ground for crazy ideas to mm-hmm. um, to emerge. Is there a lot of kind of collaboration, cross pollination between companies with with leaders, per, perhaps between categories, or is it quite a, a fierce competitive environment? You know it. I think you know I can't speak for all kinds of of uh, across industries, but I do know that particularly on the you know in the world that 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 I've been in, both on the food side and the biotech side, it's it's quite friendly. Um, and I think part of it is is a, a lot of us as founders are very mission driven. You know, many of us are missionaries and and not mercenaries. And, you know, you have, you have a lot of founders maybe in Silicon Valley that, 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 you know, it's like their fifth company and, you know, they're, you know, it's not the first time they're their first rodeo and, and maybe they're more on the mercenary route. But I would say 
the vast majority of founders that I have met are are very very mission driven, and mm. I think that coming from that background and from 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 that perspective, I've found to be to have it be a very you know just, just a, a very amicable um, and and uncompetitive place. And I think when I talk to other founders, you know, we're mm. all we're all going up against like it's the competition is not each other; it's industrialized animal agriculture which is where we get 90 percent over 90 percent of our of mm-hmm. all the meat dairy and eggs that we consume as a world yeah i want to come to that uh industry piece and 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 dig into yeah. that that competition and what that's like uh, at some point in this conversation so you said in 2015 you you founded clara foods uh, or I believe it, it, it maybe it had another name at that stage. Was that right? Yeah, it was called it, the very, very first name was a new harvest egg project. And then like two months later, we called mm-hmm. it Clara Foods. Okay. And so now this is evolved and is known as the every company. And it is a really fascinating journey. I've heard you speak a number of times and I'm super excited to kind of unpack it all. I was reading one of your press releases uh, following the the funds that you res- you raised in December, which was quite a, a, lot, a lot of money. Um, and there was a quote from one of your investors, Rage Capital, and yeah. I uh, I took a note of that. They said that by leveraging precision fermentation technologies, Every is bringing ingredient synthesis from science fiction to supermarket aisles starting with egg proteins and enzymes. And I thought this was a really interesting quote because whenever I cover this topic or speak about it with someone that's new, it does seem like science fiction when you first hear about the things that you're doing. But from what I understand, and I want you to, to get you to comment on this, it's not really so much a question of, if you're already doing some of this right now, and from my understanding, you're well on the way to helping yeah. sort of redefine the way that we're thinking about producing animal protein, would you say that that's that's a fair summary? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I, I and I'll add. You know, one of our investors, you know, quoted um, quoted um, had a quote that said, "You know, the future." is already here. The problem is that it's not evenly distributed. And that's, I think what, what gets to what you're saying is like for so many people, you know, in many parts of the world, this sounds crazy and almost impossible. Um, and we've already launched three products. You know, we've been, in, we, we, we've been selling our products the last two years and we just launched the world's first egg white without a chicken two months ago. Um, and so people are already eating our products. This is already real, um, but it's true. I think for, for, for most, it still feels very much like science fiction. So we'll come to those products because I have a number of questions about the, the way that you're actually producing them and, and how you're able to produce animal protein without an animal. It's kind of a kind of abstract thing to, to think about, um, but the process is yeah. very neat and, and I think – um, you're very good at, it, at explaining how it works. Let's wind the the clock back a little bit, though. Here, and you mentioned Texas, and I uh, I wore my 
Texas hat today <laughs> as a bit of a, a nod to Love you. it. Um, I, too, I too actually spent uh, about three and a half, four years um, living in Texas when I was a young kid. So um, we, we, we share that history there. Tell me about life as a kid for you and, and, and what I'm really interested in is your kind of relationship with food as a kid and, and whether yourself or as a family you ever remember as a child or a teenager kind of stopping and thinking about where our food comes from and the, the sort of effect that it has on the world around us. Yeah. Well, you know, you as a, as a fellow Texan uh, probably know it's, you know, barbe- the barbecue capital of the world. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a- animal protein was a huge part of my life, both as a, you know, as a Mexican, you know, me- as a Texan with Mexican heritage, you know, like any good, like any good Texan, I had my barbecues every Sunday. And like any good Mexican, I had my two eggs for breakfast every morning. And animal protein was a huge part of my life. And I never questioned where my food came from. Like that was, I didn't, I'd never met a vegetarian up until I went to, to, to college. Um, like that, that, that was, it was like something that I, I knew existed, but it felt so far away and so distant from my reality. And it wasn't until I was 16 and I was online on social media and I, someone posted a video um, of a factory farm, like an undercover investigation. And there was this like guy working at a, at a, at a, at a chicken farm and he grabbed two chickens by the neck and just slammed them across, you know, to, um, onto the cage. And I was, I was just, I was shocked. Like I was sick to my stomach and I thought there's like, this is an atrocity. There's no way that this is where our food comes from. Like this is, this is a crime and there should, and there are laws in place to protect these animals. And so I posted on Facebook and, and, um, or I don't know what the social media, I mean, it was MySpace, Um, but I, I, I was so just upset and, and it clicked for me like, Oh, I'm eating animals and they come from factory farms. Um, and that's when I, I, I told my mom, like, you know what? I, I don't want to eat this anymore. She's like, you know, good luck. I have five other kids to feed. I was, I'm one of six kids. And, uh, and she said, you know, go, go make, you can make your own meals, but I'm going to, I'm not going to cook anything differently for you. And I lasted a whopping two weeks as a vegetarian um, until I, I, I left for, for college. But that was my, my first, the first time that I really mm-hmm. thought critically about the where my food came from. And in some ways, after, since then, I almost tried to turn my brain off when I was eating because mm-hmm. I didn't want to think about it anymore because it, 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 was, it felt like this very strong cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. So tell me about heading off to college. You mentioned that that there. I think many may presume that you you went straight into you know studying something about food or food tech uh, or yeah. some sort of science around fermentation, but that's not, from my understanding, the direction that you initially took. And and if I have done my research well, 
I believe that you even ended up doing a, an internship at the Supreme Court and, and at the White House, um, no small feat, either of those, <laughs> but you had headed off in this kind of very different direction to, to where yeah. you are now. Tell, tell, tell yeah. us about that journey. Yeah. You know, I, I never thought I would be a founder. I never thought I would, I would work in food like those. I never thought I would be running a biotech company. And I never thought that I'd end up in Silicon Valley. Like that was never part of the equation because I didn't, that was a, that was a world I, that, that I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't know. And I knew from an early age, you know, I grew up on the border between Texas and Mexico in a city called Laredo. And my dad worked in Mexico and, and we would, he, you know, he would commute every single day to go to work. And on the weekends, I would go to work with him and cross the border and I would see little kids my age. I was six or seven and I would see little kids my age who had no shoes, who were selling gum on the streets. Mm. And I thought, man, like that, that could be me. Like there was... Mm. I had I been born a few miles south of the border, or had I been you know born to different parents in a different family, my life would have been completely different. And so I knew early on that I wanted, you know, I wanted to dedicate my life to service. To and in, in my head that meant public service because that's the only way I knew. I thought that I could make an, a positive impact in the world. It was through government. Because um, if I could change one law in one small way, I could really make a big difference and impact the lives of millions of people or creatures, or beings. I went to Harvard, went to study government, and I'm going to become an ambassador to the UN and you know help the world that way. I was very, I was, I was an idealist, and I, in many ways, I still am. Um, and I, I, I tried to figure out how could I make a difference in government. And so I interned with my congressman in Texas in the Department of Agriculture at the White House under President Obama and then at the Supreme Court. And I even spent some time at the UN and just trying to see if I could, if I could fit somewhere where I could feel like I was really making a difference. And the more I tried, the more I realized that I'm far too impatient for the political process. And so at, at what point was it that you began to think about this idea of producing animal protein without an animal? Um, you know, I've read, yeah. I've read some, some stories that suggest you were, you were in Geneva and you yeah. were researching China and their growing meat consumption. Is, it, is that the, the initial sort of wow. project that, that – sort of opened yeah. your eyes to this new and evolving industry? Yeah, you, you definitely did your research. That's exactly right. Um, I, was in, I was in Geneva. I was studying global food security at the UN. And I, I read a headline that said China – an article that came out that that month uh, as I was researching in 2012. This was t exactly 10 years ago. And the headline was China doubles its own meat consumption in less than 20 years. And it now consumes more than double the amount of meat of the U.S. And I had been at the USDA when we were slaughtering over 1 million animals per hour in the U.S. alone. 
to feed less than 5% of the world population. And so then seeing that China now consumed more than double the amount of meat of the U.S. and there were no signs of it slowing down, and it's not just China but across the developing countries, the first thing people do when they enter the middle class is that they buy animal protein. There's almost a one-to-one correlation between GDP per capita and animal protein consumption. And so I did the math. I was like, there's just not enough land or water on the planet to satiate that kind of, of of, of appetite for animal protein and something's got to give. And then I began researching the impact, like what that meant. And to even, and today, you know, even, even before, you know, having this, you know, even before um, having these insane increases in animal protein consumption, which are still predicted to increase well into 2050 today, animal agriculture, the meat that people eat today um, and eggs and dairy emits more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector, than all the cars, planes, ships, boats, motorcycles in the world combined. It is the number one cause of deforestation on earth because so much of the Amazon rainforest is not being cut down to, it's being cut down to grow soy, but it's not soy to make tofu to feed to people. The soy is going to feed livestock and there's an insane conversion ratio where um, where you have to grow all these grains and soy to feed these animals um, to, to convert plant protein into animal protein. And there's a huge loss of efficiency right then and there, making animal agriculture the number one cause of extinction on earth. And it uses three quarters of the world's agricultural land. 75% of the land used for agriculture today is dedicated to growing animals. And so the list just kept on and on and on. It takes over 600 gallons of water to make a dozen eggs or two, you know, over 2,400 liters of water. And so, you know, the more I I researched this and the more that I learned about the impact of animal ag, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I became obsessed Mm -hmm. trying to figure out, are there ways that we could, that we could have a more efficient and sustainable technology that doesn't kill us or the planet in the process. And so you come across this emerging yeah. field of innovation, food tech called cultivated meat. I'm not sure what it was called at that yeah. stage because it has had <laughs> quite a few different um, name changes yeah. which potentially you can speak to. But I'm interested, when you first started reading about it, were you skeptical? Mm-hmm. Because I, I think a lot of people automatically <laughs> go to skepticism as soon as they hear about it. Tell me, tell me when you first started reading yeah. about it. You know what? What introduced so, you to this concept, and how did you feel about it? Totally. So the, the the first thing I did when I when I learned about the massive problems in food, I was like, why is no one talking about this? And I was like, and my mind immediately, and this is just how I'm wired. Like as soon as I hear a problem, even when a friend is sharing, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm not the best, you know, best friend when it comes to certain situations, because as soon as a friend or a family member tells me about a problem, my mind immediately goes, so well, what, what about this? And why don't you, what, what if you tried this? Or have you, you know, what if you did this? And I immediately go into problem solving mode. And so as soon as I learned the problems of animal ag, I began immediately just researching, like what technologies are out there to act to, to solve this problem. And so I went on this massive, um, rabbit hole where I began researching the different technologies and I came across the two big areas of 
sort of alternative protein technologies. One is plants, and two is cells, um, like cell-based technology. And so on the plant side, that's more of the Beyond Meat, the veggie burgers, the Impossible Foods, the the plant, you know, using plants like pea and soy and texture, you know, using new texturizing technologies to get them to have a similar mouthfeel and a similar bite to the animal products. And so that way you can get plant proteins to start resembling more and more the animal products that they're aiming to replace. So kind of a higher tech version of you know, your grandma's veggie burger that you could see the carrots and the peas mm-hmm. on there. Now, you know, with new technologies, you can improve the texture to get them to be actually quite compelling, um, but still using plants. And then the cell-based technology, which at that point was, you know, was just a call like lab-grown meat um, or cultured meat. Now we have uh, cultivated meat is, is, is a new term where you cult, where you grow, you get a, a couple cells from an animal, right? And meat Meat is basically just a bunch of cells together, um, and you get those cells. You get a couple cells from an animal, like in this case, a cow, and you would, you know, give them nutrients to grow, and the 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 cells just replicate. And so you're working with the same exact building blocks of meat, um, and recreating and just replicating them um, to the point where you end up with like tissue. Um, that then you can cook and grill. And I mean, those, and, and at that point, I think Mark Post had made the first burger and it was like $300,000. But I was like, man, like this is amazing. Um, and I, 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 was, I was maybe a little skeptical about the cost for sure. But the technology, I mean, seeing the burger in, uh, you, know, it, you know, in pictures and that this is real um, made it very real to me. Was was Memphis Meats now Upside Foods? Were they around then? No, we were we were before them. So I think before us, the only companies they they came after us through the same program called Indie Bio. Um, so we're the first company to ever get mm-hmm. funded out of Indie Bio, and it's here in San Francisco. And then since there, yes, um, there was Memphis Meats now Upside, Finless Foods that makes seafood, um, cell based seafood, mm-hmm. New Wave that makes shrimp with algae. So now there's a lot more companies. I think there's now. Mm-hmm. We're number five. I think it's probably now like over 300 companies in the space. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, you're, you're in Geneva. Um, you, you learn about the problems in China. You're compelled to start researching and think about, well, here's a problem. What yeah. solutions exist? You come, you come across cultivated totally. meat. At that stage, did you, had you become aware of microbial fermentation, which I understand you use and – is I guess slightly different to to kind of the cellular agriculture that you just described. Yeah, so it, it's funny because my my journey took me to all right. Like my my thesis was my my big takeaway from that research was both of these technologies are very interesting using plants and using cells, but they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, right? With plants, the scalability component is, is absolutely there, right? You're using off-the-shelf technology that already exists and using ingredients like pea and soy that companies have been using for decades. But, you know, the fungibility is an open question, right? Getting the plant proteins to taste and function like the animal proteins is still something that's being worked on. And then for cell-based, it was a complete opposite where the fungibility, right, the taste and of the products, I mean, you're working with the same exact building blocks. And so you can get 
to a much more compelling, you know, sensory profile. But the challenge becomes the scalability. And that's something that now there are a lot of companies working around. Uh, but at the time, it was incredibly cost prohibitive. I mean, three hundred thousand dollars for a burger, right? That was that was um, mm-hmm. that was that's quite steep. And so, but what the, t- the yeah. big takeaway for me was there is something here. And specifically, my my hypothesis became technology can be used. There are technologies out there that we could use to give industrial animal agriculture a run for its money and truly, truly transform our food system. And that was my big takeaway. And it wasn't until I moved to San Francisco that I, where I met my co-founder who had this crazy idea of making eggs without using chickens, um, where, where we talked about the fermentation technology. And Mm -hmm. when I did the research, I thought, Man, like that's so. That's the third kind of pillar of alternative proteins. Now it's plant based on one one side, cell based on the other, and then fermentation kind of in the middle. And I fell in love with that technology because the scalability. I mean, companies across the world have scaled this technology for decades, and the fungibility was. I mean, it was incredible. You can make real animal proteins without using an animal with the same taste, nutrition. And um, and functionality that made it very very compelling as a as, as a technology. Mm-hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. 
You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Let's back up a tiny bit. You just <laughs> mentioned that you flew to San, San Francisco um, and you said that rather nonchalantly like it, it, it was a quick and easy decision. And I'm interested, you know, your, your move to San Francisco from the outside, you know, you were in this other, on this other career path um, totally. and you were kind of on your, on your way up to working in government and thinking about policy, trying to influence the world in that way and make the world more equitable. Um, but then you decide or you feel compelled, drawn to, to explore this area of food tech the the decision to leave behind what you were doing pack up and go to san francisco what was the the kind of game plan that you had in mind when you did that did you already understand what you would be doing in san francisco or was it more pack up get on a plane let's get over to silicon valley and see what happens yeah it was much more the latter. I had no job. I had no place to stay. Um, but I, I knew I had to give myself a shot at trying to make something happen. So I was actually in DC at that time. And I was about to take a job in the Obama administration full time. And I called up my amazing, an amazing mentor of mine who was, um, I did an internship also at Credit Suisse an investment bank. And he was also vegan and super excited about food tech. And so I would call him up and just fangirl about all these companies and technologies and how much I wanted to do it. Um, and so I called him up and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm about to take a job in the Obama administration because I never thought that I would work in food formally until maybe down the road in my career when I, I had skills to contribute. And maybe I was, uh, you know, maybe it was more on the government side or, or, or something else. I didn't I, it didn't cross my mind that I would start something, but um, I remember calling him and I was so excited. I was like, I'm about to take a job in the Obama administration. I, like, this is exactly what I studied. This is exactly part of my 10 year plan for myself that I had since I was like 16. And, and, you know, instead of him being excited, he just asked me, what are you doing? Like, mm. why? You should be in San Francisco. Like, why aren't you in San Francisco building the future of food and working on what you've been telling me since we met that was like, which was your passion? And, mm. and it just, it really, it caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting him to, 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 to tell it to me that bluntly. Um, but as soon as he did, mm. I, I just stayed quiet and I was like, you know what? I, I breathed heavily and I was like, you're, you're right. Like, what, what am I doing? 
Um, and I realized that at that point that I was, I was scared. Like I had, I didn't uh, like have, not having a plan was something that was very foreign to me. And I was scared to fail. I was scared to do something that I had, that I had no idea was going to pan out. And I, I just, I didn't want to do it, but there was something in my gut that said, mm-hmm. if not now, when, and Mm-hmm. And I thought that I would, I realized at that time that if I didn't do it, I was, I would probably end up regretting it. And I thought I may be on my death. I don't want to be in my deathbed asking myself, like, what if, what if I had done it? Mm-hmm. What if I had tried? And what really helped me was saying, let me give myself six months, go to San Francisco see if I can make something happen. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. I'll reapply, work, work, go back in government or go do something else. And I think me giving myself permission to just try it and time bounding it was a very helpful way of thinking about it that made it much more of a manageable and managed risk that mm-hmm. then I could take. Mm-hmm. So I guess it, as well within the the government career that you were pursuing, you'd, you'd kind of gone far enough to be able to have it still as a, a fallback plan if things didn't quite work out. Well, it, it, I think it was also acknowledging like, um, no, I, I mean, that's what I was scared of. I was like, I don't, if I leave, I don't know if I'm going to get this job again or if there's going to be something else. But I, mm. I, I think what I realized is I, I'm going to, I'm going to work my ass off trying to make that happen. And I'm at least going to have a lot more conviction in pursuing this path in government. If I know that the food piece fails, if I fail at that, I know that I can double down on government. And I think what I realize is if I, if I did the government path or if I did, if I pursued that, I knew I wasn't going to be the best. I, I knew I wasn't going to be the best I, I, because my heart wasn't going to be 100% in it. And so I almost had to get it out of my system, right? Get it out of my system, get the food out of my system. And, and like, mm-hmm. if I failed miserably, I could then go back into government with, you know, with a focus and conviction to say, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, in a couple of years, then I can work my way back into food. And I think that, that was, that was quite helpful. So after the day after I had that call with my, mentor where I was like, you know what, you're right. I, like, it, it was a really, I mean, like my stomach was hurting. I remember, and I was, I, I, I didn't want to do it cause I was scared. But the next day I booked a one-way ticket to San Francisco and I thought, you know what, this is, let me, let me just try it. So you had the support of, of this friend of yours. Uh, do you, do you recall any conversations with your family or, or the rest of your kind of support network? Yeah. I mean, getting this opportunity in the Obama administration is, is kind of a big deal. So I'm sure there were other people that perhaps had an opinion were, were yeah. was, was the, the kind of overwhelming response one of, of just supporting you in this or were there others that, that perhaps thought you were mad? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my parents were by far the most. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they were they were disappointed and upset. Like they didn't really quite understand it. 
Um, because, you know, government is also like safe and it's exactly what I had been telling them I wanted to do. And it, they, they could at least imagine it in a way that like this whole San Francisco thing and food, like even to, to this day, when I talk to my mom, she's like, how's your science project go? How's your project going? And it's <laughs> like, you know, it, it, for cute. her, it's, it's cute. <laughs> like she you know it's so for her it feels like something that isn't i mean it 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 just it's so different from the world that we grew up in in texas um that it's hard to wrap Mm. her you know to to, to wrap their heads around there were you know my siblings they knew how much i i i I, how much i cared about this and i remember i mean just like rescuing like pigeons that would crash into our windows at our house and me trying to rescue them when I was little. And so they knew how much I, I, I cared about this issue. Um, and so I think overall, they, they were quite supportive, but my parents, what I, I loved about them is at, at some point they were like, look, you know, because they grew up in Mexico, they couldn't help me in the application process for college. They couldn't help me in school. And they, you know, in some ways I kind of had to figure it out or work with my siblings to get and friends to get advice on how to, how to progress in my career and in, and, in, and in school. So my parents were, you know, they were pretty hands off and said, you know what, at the end of the day, like you've kind of managed to do well on your own. Like you have good judgment, you know, you, this is your life and, you know, mm-hmm. we don't agree with it, but, you know, do, you know, do whatever, you know, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful. So you, you sort of, you sort of got the, the, the tick of approval there and then you, <laughs> You head to San Francisco. You mentioned that you you met your uh, business partners there, um, Isha and, and Dave, who then you went on to to found Clara Foods with. For folks who have not heard of Isha before and and her work with New Harvest, can you give them a bit yeah. of a, a sort of Isha one hundred and one? Because she does seem to be like a, totally. a very important figure, a sort of pioneer of this space. Absolutely, yeah. She. Um, and so let me back up a little bit. I moved to San Francisco and the first thing I did is start just networking my ass off, like trying to just emailing friends and contacts and food, like cold emailing VCs to see if I could maybe join a fund to help deploy capital. And one founder of, of, of a company called Hampton Creek, now called Just, uh, they make the vegan eggs mm-hmm. um, using plants, using mung beans. They, um, my, my friend Josh Balk, you know, I had met him in Boston when I was at, when I was there for school. I reached out to him and said, "Hey, I want to. I'm here in San Francisco. I want to join the movement. I just, you know, I left everything to to make something happen." He said, "All right, come to his conference with me in two weeks. Uh, it's one of the first ever Future of Food conferences, and hopefully, you'll meet some interesting people there." Um, I show up. That's the day that Hampton Creek got sued by Unilever for like mislabeling their mayonnaise uh, because it didn't have eggs in it, and so he ends up not going. I show up to this conference by myself and I see the only table with young people in it and there was an empty chair and something in me was like, I need to take that chair. And so I just walked up and took, you know, asked if I could take that seat. And little did I know I was sitting across the table from Dave, my future co-founder and Isha from New Harvest. And then the, the founders of Perfect Day, um, formerly Mufri. And mm-hmm. Isha is the executive director of New Harvest, which is a, which I had actually researched and interviewed the founder of New Harvest when I was in Geneva studying cell-based technology. And so I told her I'd watch her TED talk and 
New Harvest helps accelerate the entire sort of alternative protein ecosystem, but particularly on the on the on the cell based kind of deep tech uh, mm-hmm. deep tech angle. Uh, and so she had brought David, my co-founder from Canada, who was finishing up his PhD in microbiology, to this conference as well because he wanted to do something. And he's the one who had the crazy idea without using chickens. She had already helped co-found Perfect Day and said, you know what, you and Dave need to come together and apply to this firm called Indie Bio and start the, you know, and 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 you know, see if this if this if this um, idea has any legs. So Talk me through the idea. So I think you said Dave had had this kind of idea of creating eggs without yeah. needing chickens. Um, I'm interested in the kind of creation of that that idea or um, him wanting to kind of pursue that. Why, why eggs? Was that sort of a, a product of the kind of where the landscape was at and that there was no one focusing on eggs? And secondly to that, I'm interested in your reaction. So you meet Dave. He says he wants to do this with eggs. Can you remember how you you sort of initially felt when you heard that? Yeah, I. <laughs> well, when he first told me, and it was like replicating the hand over duck cell, so it was actually using the cell based technology. I was like, this is going to be hard because <laughs> if making meat is hard, maybe making L's. I mean, making 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 eggs using using that technology is like ten times harder, um, and so I knew it was going to be really challenging. But as we talked about it, and as he thought through it, that's when you know he realized you know there's fermentation as a technology which Perfect Day was using for for dairy. Impossible was using for their heme protein that kind of is the secret sauce to their burgers, and. Um, and other companies have been using that's when he was like look we actually could use that the fermentation technology to make eggs because eggs actually don't have any cells they're just proteins fats and water for the most part and so from a technical feasibility standpoint it made a ton of sense and then when i started looking at the at the at the research and the business side it's like eggs were actually super expensive um, and, and egg whites mm-hmm. specifically, which were much simpler as a product, were even more expensive because Subway had just launched the egg white, you know, breakfast, the egg white delight for their for their breakfast. McDonald's had launched the egg white, you know, the um, the the egg white um, McMuffin, and you know, almost every restaurant was launching a healthy, you know, healthier breakfast options, and so eggs had gone through the roof from a pricing standpoint. And so I was like, look, the business is there. The B2B angle I thought was really compelling because eggs are not just a tasty mm-hmm. product, but they're a critical ingredient in so many things. Like they're in cakes and patties and, you know, and, 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 and protein bars. I mean, they're in face masks. Like, and all of these companies, I, I couldn't imagine them wanting to be using eggs except for the fact that they, they just do things that nothing else can do. And so they're very hard to replace. And so I found that the B2B angle was very compelling because it aligned very much with the way that I saw the world, which was, I don't want to convince people to buy our products. I want to make it just so easy that, mm. that they're buying already. Like my mom and dad, you know, I've been vegan for 10 years. They still eat steak as, as often as they get there, as often as they can. And, 
and they know how much this means to me. And so if my parents and my siblings are still eating the way that we ate growing up, I'm realizing consumer habits and changing them is incredibly difficult. But my mom buys the same cake, you know, for Christmas every year, the same, more or less the same grocery list. And so we could work with the brands that she already buys and that consumers already buy and just, you know, revamp the back end of food production without, without compromising the consumer experience. I thought that's how we can make a massive, massive difference in our food system. If we work in the back end and work with all the world's biggest companies and then scale much, much faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for folks that maybe are hearing B2B for the first time, that means essentially creating these, these ingredients, products, and selling them to other businesses, which are then using them in their formulations, food products, as opposed to uh, you know, a B2C customer that would be selling direct to consumer as a, as a brand that you may see um, on the shelf. I'm curious. So the, the technology, as I understand it, to produce uh, egg protein through fermentation, that at least some of that technology has existed for quite a long time, 40 plus years and, and you can kind of speak to the history of that. But yeah. I'm interested, why do you think nobody else had thought yeah. about using it to produce egg protein? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And one that I was asked almost you know every day when I was pitching the company to investors, um, which is, so one is, yes, the technology has been around for 40 years. And that was shocking to me as well. I'm like, why would we not do – Why, you know, if this technology works and has been scaled before, why aren't we using this for other applications? And what I realized is that combining disciplines is actually quite hard and not intuitive and, and, and quite um, different. Um, and what I mean by that is – this technology had largely lived in pharma companies. Like the technology had been around for 40 years, but actually having people take a technology from one industry and apply it to another is, is, doesn't, ha- you know, doesn't happen very often. Sometimes technologies just live in certain industries for decades. Um, and, and so, you know, Genentech across the street from us, actually here in our labs, was the first ever biotech company in the world. They helped make the first ever animal protein without using an animal. And that protein mm-hmm. is insulin. Insulin came from pigs. Before the 80s, we had to kill a pig to get the insulin pro- protein. You have to kill the pig, extract the insulin protein from their pancreas, purify it, and then inject it into people. And that's how every diabetic got their insulin protein from Otherwise, they would die. And it wasn't kosher. It wasn't halal. It wasn't vegan. But if you wanted to live as a diabetic, you had to get your insulin protein. And that was the only way to do it. Genentech found a way to essentially 3D print that DNA sequence encoded in the codes for the insulin protein. So all proteins in the world are encoded by four letters, right? A, T, C, and G. In the same way that all computers are encoded by zeros and one, zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. So every those four letters code for every protein in the world, and depending on how they're arranged, code for specific kinds of proteins. And Genentech found a way to three D print that DNA 
encode that into a microbe and then ferment it and then have it print out that specific protein. So fast forward to today, 99% of insulin is no longer made by pigs, but by fermenters. And so we thought, this is a very cool technology. Um, can we can we actually use the same technology and instead of making pig proteins and now pharma companies all over the world use this technology to make other kinds of medicines, other kinds of drugs. So this technology has been, you know, a lot of the medicines that we consume today and that we inject into our blood today are made using the exact same technology, but it hadn't really been used in food in a significant way because it was pretty cost prohibitive. Um, Insulin is very expensive. And just at a, um, for as a fun fact, it you needed over you needed to kill over fifty thousand pigs to make one kilo of insulin protein before mm. fermentation. So if I'm kind of hearing you correctly, you know, of course, being able to produce meat and complete eggs and and whatnot is is important, and hopefully we get to a, a future where that's happening through cellular agriculture and precision fermentation. But it sounds like there's a whole lot of other uh, proteins, animal derived proteins in our food system that perhaps people are not aware of. They're not as tangible yeah. and that, you know, companies like yours and some of the ingredients that you're producing to begin with, or the proteins can actually make a huge difference simply by being an ingredient within existing products. Exactly, exactly. And you know what was the craziest part? Is that it's not just that it lived in pharma, it was actually already in food when we started the company. So 10 years later, the dairy industry took note of this technology and started making a protein called rennet using this technology. Um, and for, for context, rennet is a protein that is used to curdle the milk to make cheese. And the only way to make cheese industrially was to get the rennet from baby cows that were only a couple of days old. And the rennet could only be found in the fourth stomach of baby cows. So you have to kill the baby cow, extract the rennet protein from their fourth stomach, throw that into milk and have it curdle to make cheese. And that's, and, and at the time, that was the only, so cheese wasn't vegetarian up until the 90s. Um, so mm. the only way to, at scale, the only way to eat, to produce cheese was to, by killing baby cows. And now fast forward to today, after the dairy, the, some of these companies started making the rennet protein using fermentation, around 90% of the cheese in the U.S. and around over 80% of the cheese produced in the world is made using fermentation. And so we thought, look, we've mm-hmm. replaced the pig for insulin protein production as a, as a society. We replaced the baby cow for rennet protein production. We thought, can we replace the chicken for egg protein production? And can we replace animals more broadly from the protein production process? And that's really the innovation that we're creating mm-hmm. here is democratizing democratizing that technology and applying that across the board. It's great to have those examples because I think it does make it less science fiction-y when, when you can explain that we're already using this on scale in, in other areas. 
I've had uh, a guy called Jared Rains on the show uh, previously. He's from a company in Australia called All G Foods that are interested in using precision fermentation to produce mm-hmm. uh, dairy products, uh, mostly mostly milk they're looking at. Um, so we did talk a little bit about the, the sort of process of uh, using microbes and the, the DNA sequencing that's involved. But I, it is a bit of a, a sort of complex area for someone that's hearing this for the first time. So perhaps we, we just tread through that um, in a little bit more detail. Can you kind of explain that process? What is a, a 3D printed DNA sequence? Sort of where do you get that from? And when you say you uh, encode a microbe or put that into a microbe, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Yeah, happy to. I'll, I'll take a step back and... I think the easiest way for me to understand it was uh, microbes are like little factories. And so in the same way that brewers use yeast to convert sugar into alcohol to make beer and wine, bakers use yeast to convert sugar into carbon dioxide to leaven bread. And yeast can also be used to convert sugar into proteins or sugar into lipids uh, into different kinds of molecules, and so yeast just basically rearrange carbon and other new, and, uh, and other um, other atoms into and reconfigure them to make different kinds of compounds, and so and all of that, all of all of those, all of those instructions are encoded by DNA, and so what we do is we work with the yeast that naturally makes protein that naturally converts sugar into protein instead of using the yeast that converts it into alcohol or carbon dioxide or something else. But then what we do is that instead of having the yeast um, make any kind of protein, there are online databases that have all of the proteins known to man. And by, by what I mean by those proteins is that, you know, for example, hemoglobin, right? For, uh, the different kinds of egg white proteins, different kinds of dairy proteins, different kinds of human proteins, they're all on, they're, they're all online. And when you get the DNA sequence that, that codes for each of those proteins, what we, there are companies out there that have been around for decades that literally print out that synthesize that DNA um, and, and, and package it into like little tubes that then what we call plasmids. And those, um, already encoded for that specific protein, that protein that gets that DNA sequence gets sprinkled into the yeast, um, and and the yeast actually naturally by poking little holes in their cell wall, you can integrate the DNA sequence um, into the into the yeast, and so as the yeast starts eating the sugar, instead of producing anything, it starts actually reading that DNA sequence as and metabol- as it metabolizes. And starts producing that specific protein, and so that's not the mm-hmm. innovation. That's every biotech company in the world. That's what biotechnology is. Um, every company in the every mm-hmm. biotech company in the world uses that technology. What we specialize on is getting you know essentially making the designing and programming these yeasts to not just become any kind of computer, but become supercomputers that can produce these mm-hmm. proteins at very, very high levels that make them actually affordable for the food industry uh, and mm-hmm. for consumers because okay. insulin and these other medicines, 
they're thousands of dollars per kilogram. So you don't need to, you can make any protein and you don't need very high yields to make them profitably. But for us, the key crux is how do we actually democratize this technology? Mm -hmm. So presumably then a key part of your kind of intellectual property and any of the companies that are in this space is that the microbe that you're working with and, and how you've programmed them to be those supercomputers? Would that be something that's quite unique between companies? Exactly, exactly. And then you can essentially specialize, like make those yeast, eat, like such great computers for specific kinds of proteins or for, like for us, we've, we've designed and made our microbe just really efficient at producing animal proteins mm -hmm. very efficiently across the board. Would another example that that people may be aware of, uh, and I'm not sure this is in market, but collagen is another protein. And I think mm -hmm. I saw a company, Geltor, um, are yeah. they using a similar type of kind of technology to do that? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now there's quite a few companies all tackling different mm -hmm. parts of the food system. Mm -hmm. And just to, to kind of get our terminology right here, so... Um, microbial fermentation as i understand it is kind of like an umbrella um and then underneath that you have precision fermentation which is what you're talking about this use of dna sequencing and inserting that into a microbe and then it produces proteins out the other side um we haven't yet spoken about the, the, the what happens next um but i believe there's some sort of filtering that takes place <laughs> versus say um Paul, Paul Shapiro's company, Better Meat Co., that's also a type of microbial fermentation, but it's, it's considered whole biomass fermentation. So how do we kind of separate these, yeah. these different um, types of fermentation? Totally. So in the biomass fermentation, you actually eat the microbe. That is the product. So the, fun, the, the yeast or the bacteria or the, fungi, the, the fungus that, 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 that you're using as like the, the bug to make the product, the, in biomass fermentation, the bug is the product. The microbe is the actual product that you eat. So like corn, Q-U-O-R-N, same thing. You're eating that, that, that fungus. Um, for for precision fermentation, the, 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 the microbe is the little factory. So you're not actually eating it. It doesn't end up in the end product. It's just that little machine that converts that DNA sequence into the actual, into a specific kind of protein. And so that, and so for us, the yeast that we work with, we don't sell. We, um, we either, we, you can use it mm -hmm. at, you can, there are other uses for it, like fertilizer or other kinds of, of, of uses, but the actual product for us is, and for prison fermentation companies is the, specific molecule that the little supercomputer mm -hmm. of the microbe made. Got you. So that microbe in your instance produces this protein, you then separate them and you end up just selling the, the protein that's been produced. I think there, there are probably plenty of skeptics out there. We, we hear yeah. a whole lot of um, you know, confusion and discussion about genetic modification. Yeah, and and I'm sure you get this all the time. From what I'm hearing, there's genetic modification is used genetic material. It is then separated, and it's not in the kind of end product that someone um, consumes. Yeah. But if someone's listening and thinking, 
this this sounds a bit sus. Um, what would you kind of like yeah. them to to better understand about the process? Well, I would say that there's like that that's you know those are all fair questions and fair concerns. That's why for us, and again, this it's a technology, right? You can use it for to- so many different purposes and so many different uses. We try, you know, for us. The real question is, what are we doing to make the world a better place? And let's have that be our true north. And what? And the reason why I say that is because we, you can actually make any protein on Earth, and even new kinds of proteins, and modify the proteins themselves to have, you know, to have different kinds of amino acid profiles, etc. We only use, we only produce proteins that are found in nature. So we do not engineer any of the proteins that we make. They are all the same ones. Our bodies, the same ones that the bodies already recognize as being bioavailable, as being nutritional, and that have a long history of being in our food system for for centuries, um, oftentimes millennia. So I can't speak for other companies, but for us specifically, we only specialize in proteins that have been around in the food industry in our in our in the food system and in our bodies for centuries if not millennia and we don't change them if you put your say your egg um white proteins under the microscope and you compared them to that from from a live chicken egg um from a live chicken that had an egg um (laughs) would would it look exactly the same yeah, so th- th- this is actually the one of the beauties of fermentation, which I which I love. Um, so the egg, the egg white has, um, and the egg has hundreds of proteins, and they all do different things. And so when you eat an egg, you eat all the proteins at the same time, even some proteins that are actually not good for you. Um, so for example, avidin is a protein in the egg white that actually binds to biotin if you don't um, if you don't if you don't denature it, i.e., cook it. Um, and so sometimes it can create a biotin deficiency in the body. And that's why certain animals can't consume it because it, it actually is not good for them. Um, and so we can remove those proteins that are either like anti-nutrients um, that, that actually are not totally beneficial because as safe as these proteins are, because we know that they're safe broadly, but um, the challenge with these proteins is they weren't made for us. Like the chicken egg, right? The the proteins in the egg were meant to support the life of a baby, of a of a of a chicken embryo, mm-hmm. right? And to feed that. And so they just so happen to be also uh, available to humans and to and and we can process them well, but they weren't necessarily intended for us. And so part of our job is, you know, really deciphering which proteins are awesome and which ones maybe are not so awesome. Um, and so we can actually pick and choose the different proteins and, and, and isolate them and, and use them as individual products. So all to say that the proteins, to answer your question directly, the proteins we produce are identical. So under microscope, they will mm-hmm. have the same amino acid profile. They, they will be processed in the same way as, um, as, as traditional egg white proteins, but it depends, but the combination of them is not is not what we specialize in. Um, we can combine them in different ways, and that's part of for applications for for cakes. You don't necessarily want you you want a protein that can foam really well, and so we can actually dial up some of the foaming properties to create mm-hmm. lighter and fluffier kinds of cakes. And then for athletes, we can make you know um, scrambles that have actually a better amino acid profile 
than those of you know that than than uh, than a traditional chicken egg actually. And so that's how we can actually leverage the technology to create foods that are not just good, just as good as what the animal makes, but how do we how do we actually create food that is designed hmm. for the end user? How far can can this technology go with with eggs? As I understand it, I think you have a product out already that is uh, egg whites. But do you do you have plans? And you mentioned scramble there. But do you have plans to to work towards recreating an entire egg? I'm sure people are thinking that right now. Is that possible yeah. to to recreate that sort of entire um, experience, or do you see the consumer's kind of understanding and expectations of what an egg looks like changing? Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we so our ambition is, and our plans are to replace the egg in all its forms um, to create to create a animal-free, sustainable option for anyone who consumes eggs in whatever application. At the end of the day, for us. The number one thing is impact. And the way to drive impact is by meeting people where they're at. So not, you know, there we have other products like the every protein that is actually an egg white protein that is that is found in the egg white, but actually has no eggy smell and no eggy taste. And so it's a very, very clean protein that you don't have to add any sugar or artificial sweeteners or chocolate vanilla or strawberry to consume a high protein drink, a high protein, you know, your coffee in the mornings. How do you add protein to your diet in a way that um, that that doesn't come with all the other baggage and crap that's added to it? So there are some products where we're actually going well beyond what 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 animals can do and what our existing food system can provide. Um, but for the most part, on the egg side, our focus is uh, meeting people where they're at and creating the same form factors, and then ev- and then also eventually also kind of optimize and innovate and create new form factors. And I think ultimately for us, the focus is let's drive impact as much as possible. And what that means is firing across all cylinders because the beauty of this technology is that it's very scalable. You know, like I mentioned with brewing and. And, and and the way that brewers use yeast to convert sugar into alcohol, we we actually can use very similar infrastructure. And so our factories at scale are like just big protein breweries. Uh, but instead of making beer, they're making mm-hmm. protein. And you know we have ABM as a partner, and they're the world's largest fermentation company um, that has a massive global footprint. And so we want to make protein high quality protein as available and accessible as Bud Light. Mm-hmm. So you, I guess you're being careful not to overpromise, but um, <laughs> you, you, you did say you want to replace egg in all its forms. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm just curious with the scientists that you work with and the, the understanding of kind of what's possible. Yeah. Do you think there is a day where you walk into the grocery store and you pick up a carton of 12 eggs and they're produced without needing a, a, a chicken at all. Yeah, 100%. What is the, the biggest challenge with regards to scaling all of this? Um, you mentioned before the, the efficiency of the microbes, really important. Yeah. Um, we haven't yet spoken about, I guess, the, the, the inputs and the, the amount of those and, and how much better it is than traditional animal um, agriculture, but I think that's interesting too. Um, but what, 
what are the kind of biggest challenges to ramping this up, being able to provide it on a scale where it is having that significant impact that you're looking for? Yeah, the the biggest challenge to scale is at this point scale, like the capacity side. So being having enough access to fermentation capacity very quickly and then that it's affordable. There is some fermentation capacity out there but there really isn't um, a ton and there's long lead times to build these kinds of facilities. So the biggest challenge to scale is just getting large enough capacities uh, online as, as quickly as possible. The microbes, I mean, the beauty of this technology is that we can get, it's hard to imagine a chicken ever getting more efficient than it is today, right? We've, we've sadly over-optimized that system where they're laying, you know, almost an egg a day. When in the wild previous, before we engineered them to, to produce at these kinds of levels, chickens in the wild normally produce between one to two dozen eggs a year. They're producing over mm. 300 eggs per year today. That means that their bodies often register that as cancer because you're just producing chicken periods, right? That's what eggs are. So to the point where their oviducts actually have tumors around them. Um, and so it's the same with like the chickens for, for, that we use for meat, right? They have that breast so big that they, their legs break after like a couple of months of, of, of being on this earth because we've bred them to be these, these, these monsters um, because they, they taste good. Um, and so, our um, our approach and the beauty of our technology is that we can we can the yeet, we can always optimize our 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 microbes and that's that's an ongoing process. There are companies out there that have been optimizing their their microbes and their yeast for thirty years, um, and so it's really mm-hmm. exciting that we continue getting better and better and better. And even once we beat the chicken, we can make we can make our proteins even more affordable. So that way, every person on this earth, not just the people in L.A. and Melbourne and Sydney and, you know, San Francisco and New York can get access to them, but really every human in the world. Um, and to make, you know, to make to make uh, global hunger a thing of the past, I should not in a world this rich, we should not be food should be the last thing people should be worrying about. I see often online people kind of questioning, you know, how much better is this for the environment? And I, I read a paper that was published in Nature, yeah. it was just about a week or so ago on on microbial protein. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it was it was more centered around what are the benefits of shifting uh, it looked at twenty yeah. percent of protein from ruminant animals to microbial protein. Yeah. And uh, so not not uh, relating to egg protein per se, but still an interesting paper. Um, yeah. And their kind of modeling showed that just replacing 20% of the global uh, ruminant meat per, on a per capita basis, it would pretty much half the annual deforestation and related carbon emissions. And that's just one solution of, of many. Uh, I'm curious... Uh, from from your perspective, when it comes to eggs, how much better is what you're doing as a company and and particularly yeah. on scale going to be for the environment compared to traditional 
chicken totally. farming. We're going through that process right now. So we now that we're scaling, because we, we, we did some initial analyses when we were a lab scale, but it is it you know it, it's just not representative of what I, I wanted real numbers that we can stand behind from our like larger scale operations and that's what we're going through now. So in a few months we should have that that data, but we should and we should be better across almost every dimension than the animal and combat industry. The question is not if it's a it's it's by how much. And that's something that I want to highlight with um, a lot of folks because you know this is something that I think from my days in government was very salient, which is, you know, we, we like to hold people to these impossible standards. And I remember when President Obama was running for re-election, people were like, oh, well, he didn't do enough and he didn't do this and he didn't do that. And like, you know, and, and, and why, you know, he, uh, why didn't he do this? And he was supposed to be doing all these, you know, all, he had all these, um, we had all these aspirations for this person. And so because he didn't get to all of those things, he shouldn't, you know, he, he shouldn't be re-elected. And one of the things that Joe Biden said is, don't compare him to the almighty, compare him to the alternative. And for me, that hits home because this is not the panacea. This, the, the, we need every solution on the table. And let's not get, like, let's not start, figuring, you know, like comparing and fighting against like, these little, you know, which technology is better, which one is worse. Like, you know, at the end of the day, either we, we need every solution on the table and, whether it's you know having your own little chickens in your backyard, right? Like people are so well, what about animals? And like what are, you know, it's right now the problem and the and the default, the de facto, the de facto MO of this world is industrialized factory farms where we produce over ninety percent of the meat, milk, and and eggs that we consume, and and that is that is an ill of this world that needs to that 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 needs to not exist for us to continue mm-hmm. live for, for us to to have a shot at averting this climate catastrophe and so my hope is that at the end of the day these technologies whether it's us or all of these other companies as long as we are doing you know that we are all fighting the good fight and we are and not every solution is going to be the you know the 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 best one for everyone and that's the beauty of food, right? There's a billion brands when you go to a grocery store and you as a consumer get to pick and choose what you want. No one's shoving it down your throat. If you want almond milk, great. If you want soy milk, great. As long as you're not drinking the factory farmed milk, you know, you can drink from the 20 different options that are on the tape that are at the grocery store. And I want the same thing to happen across every category and that people have the choice to pick their winners um, and pick their cup of tea. Talk to me about regulations. So I know that cultivated meat, it's been spoken about quite widely, uh, Eat Just and, and, and their approval in Singapore yeah. for, for some level of, 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 um, of distribution of their chicken product. Um, where, where does kind of precision fermentation sit yeah. within this conversation of being potentially considered a novel food and yeah. does it need any form of government approval or does it need to go through a process to be recognized as general, generalized, recognized as safe or generally recognized as safe? Um, what's that process look like? Yeah. It, 
So one is yes, we need approval, and we go through all the safety, all the traditional um, agencies for 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 approval of our products. Um, there are already pre- processes in the U.S. In the U.S., we have the FDA grass process in Australia, in Europe. I mean, there's the novel food process, etc. We follow all the all the existing infra, all the existing pathways, and the beauty of it is that. With the reason why you haven't really heard much about this technology in terms of approvals is because the process already exists. Like you know, the there's no new process to undergo because again, the rennet for cheese making has already been approved. The the you know a lot of the the, the, the vitamins that we eat today, a lot of these ingredients, the heme for impossible, like these. There's there's a lot of products that have already been that have already. Um, that are already in our food system that came through this process. And so we, we use the same technology, more or less the same process, just different kinds of products that we apply it to. Uh, but we follow more or less the same process. Um, that being said, on the regulatory and government side, well, you mentioned what are the challenges to scale besides the infrastructure piece, which I touched on. Um, the other piece is there's go, you know, we, we need, this movement does not have any political capital. It has some financial capital, right? There's some great investors that have been backing this because they know that this is inevitable. The science is there. Like the consumers want this. But um, government, there's, varies, there's zero political capital for this movement. Unlike clean energy, mm-hmm. right? When the world was transitioned to clean energy, um, the government made a decision that we need energy independence, but we also need protein independence. We need food independence because we, we know that when pandemics strike, which are going to continue happening because three out of every four emerging infectious diseases like COVID, right? SARS, MERS, swine flu, avian flu, they're all zoonotic. Um, and so we know that pandemics with having animals in factories that have no genetic diversity and that are pumped with antibiotics to pumping an healthy animals and antibiotics is a you know it's a breeding ground for uh um for pandemics and so we know that 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 um that this is only going to intensify covid is just the beginning um and number two is we um we this the the, the this movement needs needs political capital um and in the clean energy space the, the government knew that it didn't want to depend on other countries for its energy and food security and that it became a national security issue. It wasn't because the government wanted to save the world and prevent, you know, and prevent climate change. It was, we don't want to rely on other countries for our energy supply. And the same thing, I mean, when, when famine hits, you know, people go to the streets. And so food is a national security issue as well. And we need to, be be upfront you know be um be very very thoughtful about how do we how can we support it and i think that's one major obstacle to scale is having political capital in the same way that the incumbent animal ag industry has Mm -hmm. if we double click on on government funding for a moment here given your background i'm sure you've given a lot of thought into this but in in if it was up to you how would that funding be used to support this industry and are there any policy changes that you would like to see that would better allow companies like yourself to to scale and to prosper and to achieve the the mission that you have 
Totally. I mean, number one, and this is a little bit of a, again, like, are you talking practically or hypothetically? If I had a magic wand, like what would I do? I think let's stick to practical. So in the current environment that exists with your understanding of the policies that are in place, with your understanding of the funding or yeah. lack of funding, if yeah. there was greater political will, what would you like yeah. to see? So, okay, I, I'll, I'll still say the hypothetical, which is, um, which is, I mean, if we had enough political, which I think other countries can do, I just don't see it in the U.S., but it's not even it's not even a hard ask. It is just look, let's level the playing field. Don't give us any money. Just remove the subsidies. Like we have a subsidy regime in the US against the worst foods for you know for for us. Like there's a reason why the cheapest foods are the most terrible for us. It's not by accident. Um, and so as long as we can remove the subsidies from the like and just put put that money back into into um into people's pockets or do something you know focus mm-hmm. on reforestation or something else but like we don't have to we don't even have to give money to to companies like us or this movement just level the playing field so we have so we can really compete like the free market which is what we claim that the that that we stand for so that's like one kind of dream aspiration that i have is just a level playing field but in terms of the practicality of it i think the most practical way that we can um if there's some political will uh which i think is actually quite quite plausible is whenever we're talking about competitiveness which in the u.s now is becoming a bigger and bigger conversation is how do we how do we stay on top or how do we not keep falling behind and so how do we stay competitive with new technologies semiconductors etc lithium-ion batteries you know like that's that's a conversation that's already happening let's include alternate proteins in there whenever you know these these new industries are getting supported from government just add alternate proteins as part of that mandate and so whatever funds are going towards you know lithium-ion batteries towards um, towards these other initiatives also go towards alternative proteins and that way you know we we can ensure that we as a country are staying on top mm. of things because you know china just announced in their five-year agricultural plan president xi jinping alternative proteins as a core um, part of their of their future food strategy in a way that in the u.s that you know i don't know how many billions of of, of dollars have gone into you know it, it into um into traditional animal ag but there's been there was an amendment filed where we, there was five million dollars allocated for alternative proteins and that was like a huge mm-hmm. moment for the space and so you see that i mean we've raised 200 million in private capital five million from the u.s government for the entire industry is you know it's it's symbolic mm-hmm. um more than anything but it is really a drop in the ocean and we need a lot more support if we're going to be competitive it's pleasing to see China doing that. I, I wonder if their government is under the same amount of pressure from from lobbyists, and and I guess that that kind of extends to something else I wanted to ask you about, which was the egg industry and how you you feel going forward, what that relationship will look like. Are they going to be heavily yeah. threatened and and? in opposition to to what you're doing or is it something that you think they will embrace and get involved with 
It's going to be it's a, it's a toss up as as we've seen with the existing I mean, with the existing players today, right? You have some of the biggest meat companies like JBS and Tyson and Cargill investing in these companies, not just as active participants, but investing and putting you know money behind cultivated and plant based options. Um, those two technologies, mm-hmm. and so. That already, you know, you already see that with smart companies that are forward looking. I see that very similarly with the egg industry. There are some egg companies that we're talking to that are very, that want to partner because they have distribution and they know that demand for animal protein is continuing to grow. And so we have to find a way that, you know, it's hard to imagine that, I mean, the egg, eggs and meat, they just can't scale the way that these technologies can. And so as we provide, you know, for them, for a lot of companies, they're not wedded to the idea of torturing animals. They want to make money, right? They want to exist and want to give people what they want. And, and whether that's from chicken eggs or from fermentation eggs or plant-based eggs, you know, they're pretty open. And I think a lot of, when we talked to several companies some of them actually have already launched their own plant-based eggs and, or launched their own plant-based options. Uh, like Brazil's mm-hmm. largest egg company launched a plant-based egg. Um, and so there are a lot of really thoughtful companies that want to stay relevant uh, because they know if they don't, mm-hmm. they'll end up like Kodak and they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of plant-based eggs, and you actually, you mentioned, um, you know, your story very much starts back with one of the founders of Hampton Creek, um, yeah. who who uh, you had a, a friendship with, um, I'm interested in. Do you think going forward you'll see hybrid products? Say, for example, Eat Just. We've been talking about them, and I'm probably throwing you on the under the bus here or putting you on the spot. But um, feel free to to comment or not comment. Do you feel like certain plant based egg products can benefit by Tapping into the the precision fermented uh, produced proteins like what you're producing, and is that something? Yeah. Are you planning to kind of work with those companies in a B two B capacity? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and that's why that's why we ran it to every because we are not this like you know we're not trying to be the next beyond or impossible or or these consumer facing companies at the end of the day our focus is how do we enable everyone to win right all the world's biggest food mm-hmm. companies and also all the challenger brands the just of the world and all of these other plant based companies that are doing awesome work and could really benefit from some from some proteins that they you know, in some ways, it's not their specialty. They're great talking to consumers. They're great at building brands and getting distribution. You know, what we want to do is power the future of food and being the intel of protein for these companies to tur- to really turbocharge their products so that when consumers eat them, they are delighted. Because if these products taste like crap or they don't function or they don't taste good – we, the the space itself suffers, right? And so it's in our mm-hmm. best interest and in my best interest to acknowledge that we can't do it alone. And then if we're going to prevent the world from heating up by another point, you know, 1.5 degrees um, Celsius, we have to partner and work with as many mm-hmm. as many companies and people as possible. And 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 I have no ego about that. I want to work with anyone mm-hmm. and everyone uh, to to get there as soon as possible. Mm, I love that. It's very much a, 
an an ally uh, approach within a competitive landscape. But um, you're right. You mentioned at the start there having that joint mission that many of these companies has is a a kind of uh, thread that can kind of pull uh, people together and and uh, in in some capacity be on the same page yeah. with regards to working well, towards a common goal. Totally, and that, that that's what I love about this space more broadly and you know if i can go back and and just reflect on my career a little bit because i think it's important i never thought that i could do well by doing good like it it just was like that i could work in business and use capitalism as a force for good that that we can make money and grow professionally and you know and, and and change the world while 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 feeling good well that grow professionally, make money while being able to change the world and do something that I felt good about. I thought either I joined a nonprofit or in government and did something that was good for the good for the world, but I had to compromise on my paycheck, right, or my professional development, mm-hmm. or I worked for a company and sold my soul, right? Made a ton of money, grew really, you know, grew professionally and went up the corporate ladder, but was selling my soul in the process. And I never thought that I could merge those worlds. And so I really feel like we operate almost like a nonprofit. Um, and what I mean by that is mm-hmm. our bottom line is directly tied to the impact we have on this earth. For every kilo of protein that we sell, for every dollar of profit we make as a company, we can measure exactly you know, how many how many pounds of greenhouse gases are not being emitted into the atmosphere, how many gallons of water mm-hmm. We're saving, you know, how many acres of land are not being deforested in Brazil? You know, how many animals no longer have to live a life where they will never see the sun, where they will never walk on grass? And, you know, I, I never thought that that was possible in the private sector. And so I still feel, you know, like, a, you know, I still feel like I, I, I'm in the government or nonprofit world in many respects because I'm having, an, I'm having a positive impact, but I'm able to do it in a really fast paced environment where, I can put matters in my own hands and make the change I want to see um, at, at, at very fast at, at, at a very very fast speed. Yeah, that's got to be, you know, extremely powerful and extremely powerful motivator to get you up out of bed every morning. I and I know that your company has grown rapidly. I'm not sure how many staff you you have now, but I did want to get your thoughts towards the end of this conversation about the pressure that inevitably comes with taking on a mission like this, building a, a team, taking on investment from companies yeah. that expect you to perform well, um, dealing with staff, um, you know, increasing numbers of staff, people, their emotions, trying to build culture. Um, and I thought that you might have a few tips for other young leaders out there that also have that ambition to, to scale their company like yours? I think one thing that's been very helpful is celebrating myself. Uh, and what I mean by that is for such a long, for, for a very, for a very long time, I was my own worst critic and I just beat the hell out of myself. And I, and that's how I pushed myself to achieve. And I thought that by, you know, by, by being so critical of myself that I would, that that's how I would achieve. And it, it engendered a lot of unhappiness and stress in my life. And I began 
working with my therapist and just, you know, and, and focusing more on like, A, just being grateful, like how lucky I am that I know what my purpose is on this earth, that I know that I was put on this earth and I feel it to my core that I'm here to shut down the last factory farm on earth. That if I, that I want to be on my deathbed and if I would have accomplished that, I know that I lived a life that I would be very, very proud of. And that gives me a lot, a lot of comfort and that my family supports me, that, that they're alive, that I get to work with really great people and also kind of focus on the day to day. Like sometimes, you know, I think when I take a step back, it can be scary and maybe, you know, there's a lot of pressure, but in the day to day, I kind of, it, it gets lost. Um, and that in some ways is, is healthy as well for me because I, I'm just focused on one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, one meeting at a time. And, you know, yes, we raise a lot of money. We've grown the company a lot, but I've also been doing this now for eight years. And I was, I was 22. I, 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 when I started the company, I had no idea what I was doing. So in some ways the pressure was on then. And actually the more money we raise, the bigger the company gets. Um, it also actually feels a lot easier, the easier it gets too, Mm -hmm. uh, counterintuitively because, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I have people around me that I really trust. Like technology works, you know, like there's a lot of risk that we've retired and taken off the table. And so that gives me actually a lot more comfort to lean into that, that power. And so I think with a lot of the, mm-hmm. you mentioned a lot of founders or people who are looking at their careers, um, you know, I, I am very happy that I I just went for it. And I thank myself as often as I remember that I just go for it. And, you know, in some ways, like the universe finds a way to take care of yourself if you're if I'm pursuing, you know, my my true north uh, and I and mm-hmm. and my soul's path and having that kind of clarity and just throwing myself out there and asking for help has been has made all the difference. If someone is listening and is really excited by what you're talking about and just thinks this is a really interesting category and yeah. perhaps they're they're wanting to to get involved somehow in terms of their career, um, would you recommend that they attend any events or connect with any sort of industry bodies? where would be the kind of best place for them to, to get started with regards to learning a little bit more? Yeah, definitely look at gfi.org. Uh, they're an awesome nonprofit that, that has a ton of materials to learn about the space. But two is also just like, you know, I, I think one thing that I've loved that, that I really appreciate about myself is trying to get like forcing myself to get out of my head and into just inaction and just trying it out. And that's what I loved about the internships. I was like, I want to work in government. So then I went ahead and did an internship. And then I was like, I hate this. This is not where I want to be. Try another internship. And I didn't like that. And I tried and I tried again. And it was really possible possible of elimination. But the more times that I said no, like I don't think it had I not done all of those internships right uh, when I did and just went for it. I would likely have gone into government very definitively because mm-hmm. I, I would not have had those data points. And so all to say that if people are intrigued and interested and you're working now in some other company, apply to these companies. Like we're hiring across the board mm-hmm. and 
we, you know, this movement needs people who have every kind of skill set under the sun, whether it's finance or operations or, you know, social media. Like, you know, now these companies are big enough and the space is big enough that before, you know, you only, we only needed scientists, right, to build the technology. Now these companies are big. Now we're big enough that we're hiring, you know, across the board for product managers, you know, and marketing managers and social media and league, you know, councils and all these other positions that, you know, I, I would say – why not, you know, I, I, I learned so much through the interview process and I hope that for some of you that, that may be inspired to mm-hmm. look at what some of these job ads um, and, um, and apply. And you may be, you may be surprised. You have, I'm sure, you know, the, the fire plus the fire in the belly and the hunger to make stuff happen is something that I cannot underscore enough when it comes to when I interview candidates, like they need to really mm-hmm. want it. And that's something that you just can't teach. Arturo, this has been uh, great. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I might get you to leave us with a bit more of your vision. You know, in 10 years from now, you, know, you already have some, some products in the market. We've spoken about those. But in 10 years from now, where would you like to see the, the every company and, and what would success look like for you at that time? Yeah. What's well, funny you say that because we have an eight-year target and then an eighteen-year target as a company. Uh, so we have our, our and we have obviously our, our annual goals. But in eight years, so in twenty thirty, um, our mm-hmm. our objective is to become the world's largest supplier of egg protein. And that's not like vegan egg co- company. I think we're probably almost mm-hmm. there. Um, but the world's largest supplier of egg protein on earth. And then by 2040 is to enable the shutdown of the last factory farm on earth. And that is our goal as a company. And what that means is in the short term, really work you know, to, your, to what we talked about earlier, really owning um, and making, you know, making the egg accessible across all every kind of application in the in the in the forms that consumers know them whether it's in cakes or cookies or scrambles or pasta um, or frittatas or protein powders um, but and then in parallel is work to actually support all the other companies in the space to produce every kind of animal protein that companies are already using today to 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 make that that future possible through through all of our all of our partners. One thing that we didn't touch on, but if someone's in the states and they're thinking, oh, I'd like to 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 buy a product that's using uh, their their egg protein. Yeah. Are there any brands that you can or products that you can speak yeah. to that are using it? Yeah. So we launched. Um, we we're, we're we're pretty tight on product right now, but we will. Um, but we launched with pressed juicery in the U.S. in the in New York and L.A. Um, it's like a, a we launched the world's first protein smoothie made with animal free animal protein um, with them last year, um, and we may do may, we may do something later on. But that one was a, a limited time offering, and now we are working with Chantal Guillon, which is a you know an awesome one of the best french macaron companies uh on the west coast that makes uh that, that make french macarons which is like the holy grail of egg white functionality we used our every egg white which is where we launched it 
and they're in the Bay Area, so you can get them in the stores or online anywhere in the U.S. through that through through them. Um, we're out of we're we just sold out, uh, but we will be restocking soon, so people can now eat our product if they're in the U.S. wherever they are. Amazing! Thank you so much for sharing and uh, all of your incredible insights. It's been uh, very, very interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time to to do this and, and I look forward to watching uh, how your story and the story of the every company unfolds in the, the coming years. I'll, uh, of course, put a, a link to your personal socials and company website, et cetera, in the show notes. I highly recommend that anyone who's been listening, please connect with Arturo online and uh, stay up to date with everything that he's doing. Thank you so much, Arturo, and uh, please do enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> yeah, Simon, thank you so much for having me. This was such a, such a treat. Uh, I'm so glad um, to have been a part of it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.